Before we start the show, we have another question here from a listener named Mitch. And Mitch writes, I would love to hear how your roles have changed as Basecamp grows. As an engineer, I'm especially interested in how David makes time to still write code as an executive. You know, what does your day-to-day look like now versus then? I think he means by then, 12 years ago when, when the book came out. Yeah, that's a good question. I try desperately to make it such that the day does not look that different from when it did 12 years ago. But that's not always successful. And there are days and sometimes weeks, sometimes several weeks, where the work is consumed by running the business. And then what I find is I need to usually recharge after a stint like that. And I recharge most favorably when I am writing code, when I am into the depths of it. But I don't know if it, it perhaps just those, if you want to call them interruptions, which is perhaps a weird thing to think about when like executive is in your title, then the interruption of making the company work is not exactly <laughs> an interruption, so to speak. Um, that is the work. But Outside of that, there are plenty of days that look the same. Mm-hmm. Like Jason and I are not executives in the style of having back-to-back meetings for eight hours a day, five days a week with a calendar that's booked two months in advance. That's just not what we do here. As such, there are plenty of days where my day looks like, you know what? I have one call in the morning. Plenty of days I have zero things, zero things on my calendar. Those days happen all the time. And when they happen, I dive into the things I enjoy the most, just as we did 12 years ago. I love writing, so I write a bunch. I love programming, so I program a bunch. And it isn't even just individual days. I mean, I just did a bunch of work on the Rails 7 release, extracting things that we'd been doing, putting it in, uh, working with a new designer at Basecamp to get a new website up. And like all those things felt, the rhythm of the work felt exactly like it was when we were four people or eight people. So my ideal in many ways, what I enjoy the most is much the same as it was then. Maybe that will change. I mean, one of the things that we are doing now is sailing into uncharted territories for our company that we're pushing larger than even the large in, in our minds that we already were. And do you know what? Maybe things do look slightly different when you're at 100 people, but also maybe not. Part of the work that Jason and I have been doing recently is to build up the capacity of the company in such a way that we're not required to be involved with everything. Right. And perhaps there is even a way that we can get even more time than we've had when we ran a company of 50 people and the only executive leadership at the company were Jason and I. Now we have Elaine on board. We're hiring other uh, managers. We just put up a post for a director of engineering. I would like to believe that we can get to a point where I spend more of my day on the things I enjoy the most that I'm also the best at, mm-hmm. right? Like a lot of this running the company work has been either finance or legal or whatever, where Jason or I can step in and, and help do that work. But like, it's not what we enjoy the most and it's not what we're the best at. Yeah, it's a sim- similar um, response. Um, my, my like design stuff has changed in the fact that I'm mostly doing a lot of sketching and thinking about design and sort of mentoring versus getting in there in the HTML and the CSS, which I've become reluctantly rusty at. Um, I can jump in and get in there, but it always feels like I've got a little bit of an uphill battle at the moment to sure. like learn all the new stuff. There's a lot of new stuff that's that's come along since I was really doing this all the time. Yeah. 
But I've, I've come to really enjoy working with other designers in a way that I don't think I used to. Uh, I used to kind of like to do it myself. And I've kind of enjoyed, come to enjoy that. So it's, it's cool to see people get better and come up and come up with their own ideas and whatnot. So that, that's something. But yeah, I, I feel like I, I have to be involved in, in making things. Otherwise, like I don't, I don't want to be here. Like I basically don't want to be here if I'm not making something. Right. Um, so it, there's just different versions of what making something looks like today than it might have been, you know, 10 years ago or 12 years ago. Um, but uh, it's still making something. This might be a discussion for a whole nother episode, but uh, I wonder if you have any insight into how you've created that system, how you've avoided the trap of becoming just a manager. Well, because I, I wouldn't want to be that. Uh-huh. So, so you just didn't. Can't. I won't. I won't <laughs> sure. do that. I don't want to do that. I mean, we do more of it. But like David said, we're, we're headed in a new direction here, which is to grow the company a bit and to bring on some some more leadership and a few more layers here and there to, to run some things. Um so I think that's sort of preemptive. Also, we need it, but it's also preemptive to prevent David and I from becoming that alone. Yep. Because yep. there are there are periods of time where that is a lot of it, and that's not what we're good at. Even it's it's not even that like we want to or don't want to. Like no one here should be doing something they're not really particularly good at, and we're particularly not good at that stuff. Right. We can stand in and do it, but that's not what we're best at. So we might as well have everyone do what they're what they're really good at. Perfect. Well. uh, Thank you, Mitch, for uh, for writing in. If you would like to have uh, one of your questions or comments read on the air, send me an email at hello at rework.fm. In fact, I would actually prefer if you would record a voice memo on your phone and send that to me so I don't have to keep listening to my own voice. Uh, you can also leave us a voicemail at 708-628-7850. All right, and uh, let's get on to the show. Welcome to Rework, a podcast by Basecamp about the better way to work and run your business. I'm your host, Sean Hildner. This week, we're talking about mass. So let's go back to eighth grade physics for a second. The more massive an object is, the harder it is to stop it, start it, or change its direction. Well, just like objects, businesses also have mass. Long-term contracts, excess staff, constant meetings, these all add mass. And once your business gets too heavy, it becomes extremely hard to change its direction. Optionality and the ability to change your mind are essential to running a successful business. As always, here to discuss 8th grade physics with me are the co-founders of Basecamp and the authors of Rework, David Heinemeyer Hansen. How are you? Good, good. How are you, Sean? Wonderful. And Jason Fried, how are you? Doing pretty well, thank you. Good. So this week we're talking about the chapter in Rework uh, called Less Mass. Okay, what do you mean by mass and, and what's the, the problem with it? Yeah, when we were writing this this essay, the, the thought was, you know, where does mass pile up in an organization? Well, it can be team size, it can be company size, it can be the size of a feature or of a product, the, the number of people involved in a decision. Um, there are so many different ways where mass can pile up. And if you think about it in, in a physical way, the, the more mass something has, the more energy it takes to change its direction. Like, I don't know what law of thermodynamics that is or whatever, but I'm sure we'll put Newton in the notes. Yeah. Put Newton, yeah, put Newton's in the show notes. So, you know, the more energy it takes to change direction. And that's so true in businesses too. And so we've always been careful about not to accumulate more mass than we need. So that's about finding the right size and the right size can be different at different times in an organization's history. And, and also like when someone's new, they, they kind of need more mass around them. Uh, and then you want to also relieve them of that mass once they've kind of got their rolling. You know, you want to take that off and the momentum, carry them in different different directions. So it, it's more of a thinking about 
if if something like a company was physical, of course it is physical in some respects, but like if it was an object. Yeah, as an object, would it feel too heavy? Would it be hard to push around? Like we talk a lot about also this is a bit of a tangent, but the idea of like pouring concrete uh, in software and decisions like what decision are we making now that's going to pour some concrete, meaning like this is going to be really hard to change later. So let's be really sure that we know what we're doing. Other decisions are very temporary and can change. And mass is tied to that as well. Heavier it is, the harder it is to change. And I think the thing about mass is in the moment when you design a feature, you bring on a policy or you're hiring someone extra that you think, yeah, maybe we'll need that. It seems like a small decision and it seems like a one-off decision when in fact mass accumulates. And it's not just that individual policy, it's that that policy is still there two years later along with the other five things you put on top of that. Right. And the same thing with software. You put a feature in place that like, oh, we can do it as in we can implement it. Yeah, but can you support it? Can you carry it forward? That's the thing about mass is that it's accumulative. And it's so easy to just say yes to each individual thing and like, yeah, no big deal, no big deal, no big deal, until you reach the straw that breaks the camel's back. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, like, how did this happen? How did we become this slow company that can't seem to do anything with features that take forever, um, permissions that need to be secured by three layers of management? Like, how did this happen? Well, it happened one bit at a time. Having that sense of defense up front that mass in and of itself is something to be suspicious of, I think helps guide you through all the no's you have to invoke. That for most anything, anyone proposes something or you have an issue that seems like it needs a general solution, you're like, yeah, 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 let's do that. Less mass is about saying like, actually, wait a minute, do we need to do that? What if we didn't? That's the way I like to treat this question the most. It's like, what if we didn't? What if we just didn't do that? And you can see that in the structure of Basecamp in so many ways. Been around for over 20 years. And the entire time, it's interesting. We're just now interviewing for a uh, general counsel, a lawyer at Basecamp. We've run over 20 years (laughs) over that time, done hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue and so on and so forth. Never had a lawyer on staff. Right. Right. Like that's a thing where you think like that doesn't sound plausible. Like how would that even work? When we went in the beginning, like what if we didn't? Let's try first not to. Can we try not to for a while and then see how that goes? And then at some point, okay, fine. If it tips and you just go like, geez, this is just, there's too much or we can't do without, then you do it. But there's so many assumptions built into like, of course I need this. Of course I need that. Of course I need blah, 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 blah. Where I think when we look at our 20 year history, it's remarkable how many of those things we did not do. And as a result, how low our mass was. And as a result, how much shit we got done, how many things we influenced, how many books we wrote and things we started and whatever, without it being like it was just added on top. Because that's the other thing about masses, as we talked about, with your day. How does your day accumulate mass? Well, I have these three, four, five stand-up meetings. I check in one-on-ones with these people every week. And before you know it, you've created like entitlements around 30 hours of your week. Like, yeah, that's just like, that's just the baseline. There's 10 hours left now to do things. 
not that the other stuff isn't work, but like that sure. it's already accounted for. Mm-hmm. Um, I I loathe that sense. I just I, I get such a anxiety of feeling like I'm being held down in such a way. If, if my week is fully structured in a way that's just accounted for that I can't get out of, no. Absolutely not. As little mass as possible. I want to, next week, I just fucking want to focus on 40 hours. I'm just doing programming. You can't do that if you've accumulated all this mass that has all these obligations on top of you. And to, to tie to that, a mass seem, seems to accumulate in advance. Uh-huh. And that's kind of what it is. You almost don't see it till you come upon it. But to David's point, like, I hate looking at my calendar and going, oh shit, it's one of those weeks where I've just got like a bunch of stuff I agreed to in the past and it's full. Sometimes you got to have some stuff, but- like t- today's a good example. Let's be like current. Like today, I'm just kind of loathing today. There's so many things I want to do. I feel like I'm on, have like a bit of a creative streak going at the moment. And like, I've got like maybe two hours to do what I want. And that involves writing a bunch of stuff and thinking about a bunch of things. And I, it's just not enough time really to get into it. So it's just, you know, that's one of those days. Just yeah. have one of those days. Um, and, you know, one of those days is, is fine. When you have a few of those days, it can be okay. When you have one of those weeks and one of those months and one of those quarters, it's not okay. And if you're not careful, it, it just adds up, especially when the cost of saying yes is is close to zero. And that's what happens when you, when you commit to too many things in advance. Well, I apologize for an obnoxious podcast producer taking I was going to say, Sean, this is... <laughs> Twice in one week. Your fault. Come on, man. <laughs> uh, so, so what are the, some of these things that that cause mass to build up in a business? There's, there's a few examples you mentioned in the book, like meetings, yeah, um, excess staff, that kind of thing. You know, it's funny we were talking about this as we're as we're looking to hire a bunch of people, trying to find the right cultural fits, and um, sometimes there's some people who would feel like they'd take up a lot of room, and other people who feel like they'd fit right in, and you know. You got to think about the kind of person you want in a particular team. In the broad sense, what we try to avoid are, and this is a great way to avoid adding mass, is to try to avoid people and processes that will create a lot of work for others. Mm -hmm. You don't want a lot of people around who are making work for other people. That's a problem. And that's where a lot of mass accumulates, especially when it's almost like, it's just sort of like shrapnel. Like someone having a certain position or, or a certain responsibility sort of impacts too many people and that comes by impacting their time and their day and cutting it up into pieces. It's like, that's, you got to be very, very careful about that. And to David's point about like, we, we never hired a lawyer, which almost seems like, okay, but we, we'd never hired, we'd never had someone in charge of finance, <laughs> like, but until like a few months ago, but I've seen a number of startups with like six or seven people that have a CFO already. Right. And that's like too early. I think I would say like way too early. So that's like accumulating the, maybe the wrong kind of mass too early. Not that that role isn't important. It's probably not important yet, especially like if you don't even have any revenue coming in yet or any of those things. So um, it's it's a lot of it's timing. It's not necessarily position. It's it's timing. And I think that that's one of the areas where we've just almost to make a point, tried to push the envelope. Could you have tens of millions of dollars in revenue, sixty people at your company, and not have someone ahead of finance, right? Or are you not even ahead of in charge of finance? Is that a possible thing to do? And I think on a lot of questions of that regard, I've almost been surprised. Oh yeah, actually, you can't go that far without it. <laughs> but I think perhaps to Jason's point about being hesitant with people who 
create work for others yeah. is the one where I'm the most sensitive because those early experiences of my career working with managers who in my best assessment at the time were net negative that so they ended creating up <laughs> more mass for everyone else to carry around and for what who were they taking the load off for right especially these kinds of uh, status reporting change like this person that's constantly walking around asking, is this done yet? When is this done? And then aggregating that somehow and then going up the chain with it. I had a few experiences with managers like that where I just like, you're, I mean, this doesn't mean they're not nice people, but in their function, you're worse than useless. You're literally inflicting damage on the organization by you being here. And if you were not here, things would be better. And now we are in this spot a bit I mentioned the director of engineering role, and we've had a few other roles where, like, do you know what? These people are here mainly to manage. You reach at some point a certain size where it does more harm to the organization than not if you don't have someone uh, in charge of these things. And I think this is one of the things that's so fascinating about the current time at the company is we are charting into some unknown waters and we don't know fully how it's going to play out, but that that shouldn't hold us back, right? Because I had a bad experience with a bunch of managers, what, fucking 20 years ago, more, <laughs> um, is not a reason that we, we can't try some things. But we walk into it with this in mind, less mass, right? What if we didn't do it? And, and also, it's funny, like, <laughs> most people listening to this would be like, you guys are afraid of going from 60 people to 100? Which is still like, tiny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like... You're you're afraid of hiring your first lawyer, like you know, like but 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 it's a good example of all problems are, are relative. Right. It's not that you know your problems don't matter; they're your issues, whatever they are. As Basecamp grows, how do you plan to try to stay nimble? I think a big part of it is is team size. So even if we're aiming for a hundred people, that's not to make our product team. For example, when we say product team, um, that's like a team that works on a particular feature. Let's say over over a four or six week period or two week or whatever. That's still going to remain two people, uh, maybe three, something like that. It's not about making the teams larger. It's about having more teams. So I think that's that's the way you do this sort of thing. Um, now, one of the challenges is is uh, structurally reports and and all that stuff, which is why we're adding some additional layers. Because as you add more people, you can't ha- have someone with twenty reports. You know that doesn't really work. Right. But the teams themselves are going to say small, really small. And we found it used to actually be three. It used to be two programmers and one designer per feature. And now we're like at one programmer, one designer. Maybe that's right. Maybe it's not. But I can't imagine that ever going to four or five or six. That mm-hmm. wouldn't make things faster or better. A lot of this chapter and a lot of this book deals- Can I add one more thing? Sorry, of Sean. Of course actually, you can. Because I was just sharing that about about product development. But as I'm thinking through, as, as we're interviewing uh, for, for a lawyer, one of my, and I've been upfront with the lawyers we're interviewing, is like, I'm afraid of lawyers in companies. Because most most people or most companies I know that have a lot of lawyers are lawyer run businesses and they speak legally and and everyone has to run things by them before they do anything and there's like a a calcification that forms and and you like can't really move fast anymore because we make like a lot of decisions we just like make decisions and move and I want to make sure we maintain that obviously there's some key decisions you run by people and whatnot but I don't want to be afraid and I don't want to be have to have everything gut checked by legal, you know? So we're trying to find someone who goes, yeah, I, I wouldn't want to do that either. You know, I, I don't want to be, I'm not that kind of lawyer. That's, that's another thing in, in terms of staying nimble is making sure that whoever you hire in a role 
allows the company to continue to, to do what it's good at, but then also provide support for things that it's not good at. And I think that's like a good example of right now we don't have anybody in house to review things and we have to always send everything outside and we don't have a liaison internally and we need we definitely need someone for that. I think the other part there is resisting this point of installing checkpoints, sign off points that like someone comes up with a good idea and then like first they have to get that signed off by their lead. Then they have to get that signed off by a manager. Then they have to get that signed off by an executive or, or whatever. Those kinds of stories just make my skin crawl, uh-huh. right? Like the distance between I have a good idea, I notice an issue, to I fix things, I've made it better, has to remain very, very short. This is where the book turned the ship around. Um, was really good at crystallizing that concept by the notion of I intend to. You have a bunch of people on your ship or in your company who act as though they are fully autonomous agents who can make their own decisions because they are close to the work that they're doing. And they simply proclaim, this is what we're going to do. We don't ask, hey, can I? Can I do this? Is this allowed? No, no. Say, I intend to. And if someone has a, an issue with them, it's on them to step in and say like, no, actually, Let's I think- pump the brakes. Yeah. yeah we got to pump the brakes. We got to do something else. I'd rather make mistakes by doing sort of too much in that regard that someone takes too much initiative and then you go like, hey, let's just have a chat about this uh, or roll it back even, then fall into the other trap, which is that everyone needs to have four levels of sign off before they can do anything. That is just such a disempowering environment. Right. And it also cuts so strongly against our long-term value of managers of one. Right. That even if you have a manager in the sense that like you're reporting up to someone, you should still feel as though like you're in charge of your own domain and your expertise and you know best. In most cases, the majority of the information on which way to go, especially on feature design, especially in the details, lie with the person who's currently working on it. Don't take that away and bubble it up to someone who's barely sort of in tune with what's going on. Keep it at the people doing the work. You place so much importance on this ability to change your mind. Why is that so important to you? It's not something you hear, a lot, especially you're talking about business. It's a lot of like stick to your guns kind of talk. And uh, yeah. I think this book especially goes very deep into the importance of changing, being able to change your mind. I, I don't know. I mean, I would say decisions are a product of the moment in which they're made and time changes and situations change and moments are different. Why wouldn't you want optionality if you have new information or a better a take or a new idea or whatever? It makes for actually makes for a better decision because I think you're more willing to sort of make them and commit to them knowing that like, hey, we can always change this if it doesn't work out. Decisions that are permanent or feel permanent are loaded with a lot of fear and anxiety and typically not quite as sharp because you're always hedging a little bit just in case versus like you can commit fully to something and if it doesn't work, you just do it again differently next time. So I feel it feels like a feature of, of a good decision is not to worry about it. Yeah, I think it, it allows us to be more aggressive on pushing the envelopes and things. We had all these discussions in the product, I remember with Hay in particular, where we took all these sort of very hardcore stances. No, you can't import your emails. That's that's a stance. And we're going, you know what? We're, we're going to push that. For V1, this product is going to be full of really sharp edges. And then all of it is up for renegotiation. We look back on partners like, do you know what? Is this the thing we want to stick to? 
like spy pixels actually should should the product actually have spy pixels on the other way okay no right so we made a decision on that we're not going to change our mind on that but like importing some of your emails this is one of the things we've been talking about could we relax that somewhat yeah perhaps probably is that a good idea i don't know yet but just the fact that the doors open makes it so much more comfortable in my opinion to make these hard decisions or or sharp decisions i should say and that makes for more interesting products because sometimes you'll take whatever, 10 decisions, 100 decisions, and you'll think like, whoa, those were really sharp. And some of them turn out like that was exactly what was needed. We were never going to get there unless we trusted our instinct to do it. And as Jason said, you would have watered it down if you thought this was going to be the permanent thing you had to live with forever. We're in this moment right now as a company, as a whole, where like there's all sorts of things we're looking at, all sorts of premises we're testing, which I think becomes even more important the longer you're around. The half-life of a good decision is quite short. This company is a collection of decisions that we've made over the course of 20 years. And some of those decisions are 15 years old. Some of those decisions are nine years old. Some of the decisions are two years old. And not all of them age like fine wine. Some of them just spoil. And you go like, do you know what? That doesn't work anymore. It's got to go. And sometimes it's because you got wiser. Like, oh, I realized I was just wrong. And sometimes the environment just changed. Yeah, That was the right thing at the time. It's no longer that time and we got to do something else. And I think embracing that sense of, do you know what? It is all up for discussion. It doesn't mean we discuss everything from first principle every morning. Like that would create some long days. But the theory that it is up for discussion, I think creates a flexibility and also makes it more interesting. That's the other thing. At this point, at least in my career, I think the same is true for Jason. Is like, you know what? The work's got to be fucking interesting. There's plenty of people who've essentially retired by age 42. I, I could do that too. If I show up every day, we talked about this earlier, right? If the days start feeling like weighed down by mass and obligation, I could also not. So part of the work here for Jason and I is to ensure that we create a company that is interesting for us still to be at. And then hopefully by extension, that is interesting for other people who work at the company and that we create interesting products and we create products and make decisions that no one would give us permission to if we were asking investors or that no one asked for. Hay is full of decisions that no one asked for. Um, <laughs> and that space, I think, just becomes so much more interesting when you're not afraid of making decisions and you're not afraid of changing your mind. Well, I think that's a wonderful place to end. Next week, we'll be talking about uh, embracing constraints. So for now, I would like to say thank you to David Heinemeyer Hansen. Thanks, Sean. And thank you, Jason Freed. Thank you. We'll see you next week. See you then. Rework is a production of Basecamp. Our theme music is by Clipart. We're on the web at rework.fm, where you can find show notes and transcripts for this and every episode of Rework. We're also on Twitter at Rework Podcast. If you're following along with the book, next week we'll be discussing the chapter Embrace Constraints. If you like the show, I'd really appreciate it if you would leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or wherever you're listening to this. And if you have any comments or questions for Jason or David, please leave us a voicemail at 708-628-7850 or better yet, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to hello at rework.fm. <laughs>